0: This is John DeFauld from John Sandoe Books in Chelsea, London, with a new installment of readings from P.G. Woodhouse. Now, for the first time, we are in the sublime company of Bertie Worcester, and the novel is Thank You, Jeeves. If, at this period of isolation and uncertainty, you find your spirits inclined to the lugubrious, I hope you will find here a gentle antidote. We begin... At the beginning. 1. Jeeves Gives Notice I was a shade perturbed, nothing to signify really, but still just a spot concerned. As I sat in the old flat, idly touching the strings of my banjo lele, an instrument to which I had become greatly addicted of late, You couldn't have said that the brow was actually furrowed, and yet, on the other hand, you couldn't have stated absolutely that it wasn't. Perhaps the word pensive about covers it. It seemed to me that a situation fraught with embarrassing potentialities had arisen. Jeeves, I said. Do you know what? No, sir. Do you know whom I saw last night? No, sir. J. Washburn Stoker, and his daughter, Pauline. Indeed, sir. They must be over here. It would seem so, sir. Awkward, what? I can conceive that after what occurred in New York, it might be distressing for you to encounter Miss Stoker, sir, but I fancy the contingency needs scarcely arise. I weighed this. When you start talking about contingencies arising, Jeeves, the brain seems to flicker and I rather miss the gist. Do you mean that I ought to be able to keep out of her way? Yes, sir. Avoid her? Yes, sir. I played five bars of Old Man River with something of abandon. His pronouncement had eased my mind. I followed his reasoning. After all, London's a large place. Quite simple, not to run into people if you don't want to. Gave me rather a shock, though. I can readily imagine so, sir. Accentuated by the fact that they were accompanied by Sir Roderick Glossop. Indeed, sir. Yes, it it was at the Savoy Grill. They were putting on the nose bag together at a table by the window. Here's rather a rummy thing, Jeeves. The fourth member of the party was Lord Chuffnell's aunt, Myrtle. What would she be doing in that gang? Possibly her ladyship is an acquaintance, either of Mr Stoker, Miss Stoker, or Sir Roderick, sir. Yes, that may be so, but that might account for it. Surprised me, I confess. Did you enter into conversation with them, sir? Who, me? No, Chiefs. I was out of the room like a streak. Apart from wishing to dodge the Stokers, can you see me wantonly and deliberately going and chatting with old Glossop? Certainly he has never proved a very congenial companion in the past, sir. If there's one man in the world I hope never to exchange speech with again is that old crumb. I forgot to mention, sir, that Sir Roderick called to see you this morning. What? Yes, sir. He called to see me? Yes, sir. After what has passed between us? Yes, sir. Well, I'm dashed. Yes, sir. "'I informed him that you had not yet risen, and he said that he would return later.' "'Oh, he did, did he?' "'I laughed. One of those sardonic ones. (sighs) "'Ha! "'Well, when he does, set the dog on him.' Uh, "'We have no dog, sir.' "'Then step down to the flat below and borrow Mrs Tinktermilk's Pomeranian, "'paying social calls after the way he behaved in New York. "'I never heard of such a thing. Did you ever hear of such a thing, Jeeves?' I confess that in the circumstances his advent occasioned me surprise, sir. I should think it did. Good Lord, good heavens, good gosh. The man must have the crust of a rhinoceros. And when I give you the inside story, I think you'll agree with me that my heat was justified. Let me marshal my facts and go to it. About three months before, noting a certain liveliness in my Aunt Agatha, I had deemed it prudent to pop across to New York for a space to give her time to blow over. And about halfway through my first week there, in the course of a beano of some description at the Sherry Netherland, I made the acquaintance of Pauline Stoker. She got right in among me. Her beauty maddened me like wine. Jeeves, I recollect saying, on returning to the apartment, who was the fellow who, on looking at something, felt like somebody looking at something... I learned the passage at school, but it has escaped me. I fancy the individual you have in mind, sir, is the poet Keats, who compared his emotions on first reading Chapman's Homer to those of stout Cortes, when, with his eagle eyes, he stared at the Pacific. Oh, Pacific, eh? Yes, sir. And all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. Oh, of course, it all comes back to me. Well, that's how I felt this afternoon on being introduced to Miss Pauline Stoker. Press the trousers with special care tonight, Jeeves. I'm dining with her. In New York, I've always found, one gets off the mark quickly in matters of the heart. This, I believe, is due to something in the air. Two weeks later, I proposed to Pauline. She accepted me. So far, so good. But mark the sequel. Scarcely 48 hours after that, a monkey wrench was bunged into the machinery and the whole thing was off. The hand that flung that monkey wrench was the hand of Sir Roderick Glossop. In these memoirs of mine, as you may recall, I've had occasion to make somewhat frequent mention of this old pot of poison. A bull-domed, bushy-browed blighter. Ostensibly a nerve specialist, but in reality, as everybody knows, nothing more nor less than a high-priced loony doctor. He's been cropping up in my path for years, always with the most momentous results, and so it happened that he was in New York when the announcement of my engagement appeared in the papers. What brought him there was one of his periodical visits to J. Washburn Stoker's second cousin, George. This George was a man who, after a lifetime of doing down the widow and orphan, had begun to feel the strain a bit. His conversation was odd, and he had a tendency to walk on his hands. He had been a patient of Sir Roderick's for some years, and it was the latter's practice to dash over to New York every once in a while to take a look at him. He arrived on the present occasion just in time to read over the morning coffee and egg, the news that Bertram Worcester and Pauline Stoker were planning to do the wedding glide, and as far as I can ascertain, he was at the telephone ringing up the father of the bride-to-be without so much as stopping to wipe his mouth. Well, what he told J. Washburn about me I cannot, of course, say, but at a venture I imagine he informed him that I had once been engaged to his daughter, Honoria, and that he had broken off the match because he had decided that I was barmaid to the court. He would have touched, no doubt, on the incident of the cats and the fish in my bedroom, possibly also on the episode of the stolen hat and my habit of climbing down water spouts, uh, winding up, it may be, with a description of the unfortunate affair of a punctured hot water bottle at Lady Wickham's. A close friend of J. Washburn's and a man on whose judgment J.W. relied, I take it that he had little difficulty in persuading the latter that I was not the ideal son-in-law. At any rate, as I say, within a mere 48 hours of the holy moment, I was notified that it would be unnecessary for me to order the new sponge bag trousers and gardenia, because my nomination had been cancelled. And it was this man who was having the cool, what's the word, to come calling at the Worcester home. I mean, I ask you. I resolved to be pretty terse with him. I was still playing the banjo when he arrived, Those who know Bertram Worcester best are aware that he is a man of sudden, strong enthusiasms, and that when in the grip of one of these, he becomes a remorseless machine, tense, absorbed, single-minded. It was so in the matter of this banjalele playing of mine. Since the night of the Alhambra, when the supreme virtuosity of Ben Bloom and his sixteen Baltimore buddies had fired me to take up the study of the instrument, not a day had passed without its couple of hours assiduous practice, and I was twanging the strings like one inspired when the door opened and Jeeves shoveled in the foul straight waistcoat specialist, to whom I have just been alluding. In the interval which had elapsed since I had first been apprised of the man's desire to have speech with me, I had been thinking things over, and the only conclusion to which I could come, was that he must have had a change of heart of some nature, and decided that an apology was due me for the way he had behaved. It was, therefore, a somewhat softened Bertram Worcester, who now rose to do the honours. Ah, Sir Roderick, I said, good morning. Nothing could have exceeded the courtesy with which I had spoken. Conceive of my astonishment, therefore, when his only reply was a grunt, and an indubitably unpleasant grunt at that. I felt that my diagnosis of the situation had been wrong. Right off the bull's eye, I had been. Here was no square shooting apologizer. He couldn't have been glaring at me with more obvious distaste if I had been the germ of dementia praecox. Well, if that was the attitude he was proposing to adopt, well, I mean to say, my geniality waned. I drew myself up coldly, at the same time raising a stiff eyebrow. And I was just about to work off the old to what am I indebted for this visit gag when he chipped in ahead of me. You ought to be certified. I beg your pardon. You're a public menace. For weeks, it appears, you've been making life a hell for all your neighbours with some hideous musical instrument. I see you have it with you now. How dare you play that thing in a respectable block of flats, infernal din!" I remained cool and dignified. Did you say infernal din? I did. Ah. Well, let me tell you that the man that hath no music in himself. I stepped to the door. Uh, Jeeves, I called down the passage. What was it Shakespeare said the man who didn't have music in himself was fit for? Uh, Treasons, stratagems and spoils, sir. A thank you, Jeeves, is fit for treasons, stratagems and spoils, I said, returning. He danced a step or two. Are you aware that the occupant of the flat below, Mrs Milk, is one of my patients, a woman in a highly nervous condition? I have had to give her a sedative. I raised a hand. Spare me the gossip from the loony bin, I said distantly. Might I inquire on my side if you are aware that Mrs owns a Pomeranian? Oh, don't drivel! I am not driveling. This animal yaps all day and not infrequently far into the night. So missus Tinklermook has had the nerve to complain of my banjolele, has she? Ha! Let her first pluck out the pom which is in her own eye, I said, becoming a bit scriptural. He chafed visibly. "'I'm not here to talk about dogs. "'I wish for your assurance that you will immediately cease "'annoying this unfortunate woman.' "'I shook the head. "'I'm sorry she is a cold audience, but my art must come first. "'That's your final word, is it?' "'It is.' "'Very good. You will hear more of this.' "'And Mrs Tinklemulke will hear more of this,' I replied.' brandishing the banjolele, I touched the buzzer. Jeeves, I said, shows our glossop out